Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 245 with Stephen Kotler. We are talking all about flow, how to get there and get there more often. You know, that amazing sensation where you just lose all track of time and just stuff happens awesomely. That's what we're talking about. So you'll learn one, the golden rule of flow. Two, how to find flow using psychological and neurobiological triggers. And three, how to take breaks without interrupting your flow. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep245. Now here's Stephen's story. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the co-founder slash director of research for the Flow Genome Project. He's one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. Here's Stephen. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's my pleasure. Well, first things first, I got to know how you broke 82 bones. It's actually 83. Oh. But, so I've spent essentially my entire career asking the same question, which is how do people do the impossible? How do you level up your game like never before? And I came to that question through a really weird door. I walked in through the door of journalism and I became a journalist in the early 1990s. And back then, action sports, so surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, and the like, were a really hot topic. And back then, if you could write and ski and write or write and rock climb or write and surf, there was work. Couldn't do any of those things super well, but I really needed the work. So I lied to my editors, and I was sort of lucky enough to spend the better portion of a decade chasing professional extreme athletes around mountains and across oceans. And... Uh, when you're not a professional athlete, you spend all your time chasing professional athletes around mountains and across oceans. You break a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> which, which is how I ended up breaking 82 bones along the way. So I'm curious now, how many different bone breaking episodes was it that uh, cumulatively totaled 83? Okay. So when I was 16 years old, I skied off a cliff in Switzerland and split my patella. Two weeks later, after I got home and out of the hospital, I was in a car wreck and split my other patella. From that point on, my legs did not fold properly. So when I started chasing professional athletes around mountains and across oceans, every time I impacted, I put a microfracture into my legs. So when I had about 67 microfractures, they all turned into a major fracture. So 67 of those happened Whoa. over a really long period of time, but they all kind of happened at once. It's a very funny thing. Go to your doctor's office. The doctor looks at you, holds up your x-ray, and he says, all right, so how did you get here? And I said, well, you know, I parked my car, and I, and I walked. He said, no, you didn't. Don't lie to me. You can't walk. Look at your x-ray. How did you get here? And I said, well, I walked. And he said, no, no, you're lying to me. You can't walk. Look at your x-ray, which was pretty funny. Well, that's a whole other subject. So does your body have basic mobility and capability to deal with pain? How do you like live your life with that? It's really funny because people ask me that all the time. And I'm 50. I still spend, you know, I'll, I still ski about 50 days a year. I still chase professional athletes around mountains. Um, I mountain bike another 30 days a year. I'm really active. I have almost no pain. And I credit a lot of it to Ashtanga yoga. I mean, I've lifted weights. I've done a lot of stuff, but I've found that as long as I continue to do Ashtanga yoga, I have 
almost no pain. All right. Well, that's a little bonus tip you weren't expecting. Thank you. Cool. Well, now can you share with us a little bit, what's the Flow Genome Project about and your research there? Absolutely. So at the Flow Genome Project, we study ultimate human performance, right? We study what does it take to be your best when it matters most. And we're a research and training organization. And the training side, we work with everybody from kind of the U.S. Special Forces, the Navy SEALs and such, through kind of elite action and adventure sport athletes, Red Bull athletes and the like, professional athletes, to companies like Google or Ameritrade, spend a lot of time on Wall Street, to average individuals. And on the research side, we're the largest, I think it's the largest open source research project into ultimate human performance in the world. And kind of at the heart of all the work we do is the state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. Mm -hmm. So you may, you may know flow by other names. We call it runner's higher being in the zone or being unconscious flow is a technical term. And it's defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. And more specifically, it refers to any of those moments of kind of rapt attention and total absorption. We are so focused on the task at hand that everything else just vanishes. Action awareness will merge, your sense of self will disappear, time will pass strangely, it'll slow down or it'll speed up. And, and throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical go through the roof. So flow is sort of the source code, the signature of ultimate human performance in pretty much any domain you study. And so that's at the heart of the work we do. Okay, so that's so good. So now you're bringing me back to memories of reading uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, I think was the subtitle. And so I remember a chart that stayed with me forever with regard to one of the keys to getting into flow is that uh, the, the task is not too easy, then you're just bored. And the task is not too hard, then you're just overwhelmed and stressed. But that the task is just right with regard to having a bit of challenge that requires a little more attention and focus and absorption in order for you to execute it. Now, in your most recent research, does that hold true? And what are the most kind of essential other core ingredients to reaching that flow as often as possible? So you are absolutely correct. You're talking about what's known as the challenge skills balance. All right. And you are absolutely correct in your description, right? Emotionally, we say flow shows up not on, but very near the midpoint between boredom, not enough stimulation, I'm not paying attention and anxiety, whoa, way too much, right? In between is the sweet spot is what's called the flow channel. Or if you speak physiology, it's the, it's the Erks-Dobson curve. Nonetheless, that is still so. What we're talking about is a flow trigger, a precondition that leads to more flow. When Csikszentmihalyi did his original work, these really weren't well identified. It's 20 years later, and we now know there are 20 different triggers for flow. There are probably way more, but we've identified 20 triggers for flow, 10 that produce individual flow, what you and I would be like flow in a flow state. And then there's a shared collective version of a flow state known as group flow that it shows up very commonly at work, right? If you've ever taken part in a great brainstorming session, or you've sung in a church choir, or played in a band, or seen a fourth quarter comeback in football, right? If you happen to see what the Patriots did to the Falcons last year in the fourth quarter, perfect example of what group flow looks like. So we've got 10 triggers on each side and the challenge skills balance is obviously one of them. It's actually it's funny that you remember it. It's a good one to remember. It's often called the golden rule of flow. People, a lot of people talk about it as the most important of flow's triggers. Okay. Well, so it's the only one I know. And you got 19 more for us. So, well, how would you like to tackle this in terms of I'm interested in the ones that are the most powerful, the most easily accessed by the greatest number of people, and, and that just provide a great bang for your buck there? Yeah. So let me give you a quick and dirty overview 
some of this stuff. So All right. the first thing you got to know is the most obvious is that flow follows focus, right? The state only shows up when all our attention is focused on the right here, right now. So that's what these triggers really do. They drive attention into the present moment. Now, if I could hit that, and then we say flow follows focus, a corollary to that then is you focus first and then flow comes as opposed to you hope that flow shows up and then you're able to focus. Is that fair? Okay. So when we work with organizations, the first thing I always tell people if they is if they can't hang a sign on the door that says, bleep off, I'm flowing, they're in trouble. And the reason is you need intense focus and uninterrupted concentration for flow. And the research actually shows 90 to 120 minute blocks of uninterrupted concentration are the best. And that if you're doing something really creative, you may need to stretch that out even up to like four hour blocks a couple times a week. So if you are running an organization or working in an organization where they, which is very, very typical these days, where messages have to be responded to in 15 minutes and emailed within an hour, those are horrific working conditions, terrible working conditions, because you are literally blocking the very state of consciousness, the very kind of focus you need to perform at your best. And let me put, just put some numbers around the boost you get from flow. I can go into the research behind all this stuff if you want, but you have to understand the upside we're talking about is McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found top executives reported being 500% more productive in flow. It's a huge boost. Research done by my organization, done at Harvard, done a bunch of other places, have found that creativity spikes 400 to 700% when in flow. Research done by the Department of Defense found that learning goes up 470% in flow. So these are huge, huge spikes in cognitive performance. So it's really worth kind of trying to alter your working conditions to produce them because the benefits are significant. Now, now that is so striking. I got to speak up on behalf of any skeptics in the audience like, whoa, how are they measuring a 500% bump in productivity or creativity or learning? Do you have a sense for the, the units? or? Yeah, so they're measuring in lots of different ways. And it's funny because we're relaunching that. We want a better look at the productivity. So we're relaunching a, a flow and business success study, I think in February with Deloitte to take a better look at it. So for example, learning is a really easy one that I can speak to. They basically take they were working with people from uh, the military snipers. The military knows how long it takes to train a sniper up for performance, right? There's really clear records on that. So they were working with a team at Advanced Brain Monitoring, Carlsbad, California. So one of the other things that's starting to happen now is that all the tech stuff we're talking about are psychological hacks, but we're starting to get technological with this. We understand the neuroscience of flow. We understand what's going on under the hood and we can steer people using technology towards flow states. So that's what they did. They used EEG technology. They recorded expert brainwaves, expert archers brainwaves in flow shooting at a target. Then they use that and use neurofeedback with novice marksmen to train them up until they shot at an expert level using neurofeedback. So trying to get their brainwaves into the same state so flow the experts were in. But if you search, by the way, Chris Berka, B-E-R-K-A, Advanced Brain Monitoring TED, you will find her TED Talk on this work and you actually can see video. And I think it literally took them like two days to train people up to shoot like experts. It was frightening. That is so wild. Can I get my hands on a neurofeedback machine or... 
much you can. There's everything from like super friendly, easy, like places to start, like the Muse headset, all the way up to some really crazy stuff. The transformative tech market, which is what this all sits in, is exploding right now. I mean, all kinds of there's a revolution going on right now in consciousness. And a lot of it is a really good reason for this, which is one of the things that we've discovered is that there are certain skills that are absolutely critical to thrive in the 21st century. And the lists vary, but accelerated learning is on most lists. Creativity tops everybody's lists. Cooperation, collaboration, communication. And we, we're horrible at training up these skills. Creativity is a really funny one. I, I, we get to take part in the Red Bull Creativity Project. It's the largest meta-analysis of creativity ever conducted, like 30,000 studies reviewed. And, and they learned on the end two things. One, creativity is the most important thing that we, we need to thrive in the current century. And two, we suck at training people to be more creative. And the reason is we keep trying to train up skill sets. And what we really need to be doing is training up states of mind, right? All of these so-called skills are amplified by altering our consciousness. That's how we're wired to do this. That's what the biology tells us. So we're just now starting to figure that stuff out, but it, it's spreading really quickly. And the transformative tech movement is helping it spread. Okay, well, that, that's so cool. Now, in your book, Stealing Fire, you sort of lay out kind of four sets of forces, and technology is one of them. And so why don't we round that one out, and then you can share with us some of the triggers that fall into the other three categories. For sure. So... Well, we were basically trying to figure out what was driving all this acceleration in this whole field, right? Like, why was it exploding? Why were we seeing really weird things like 44% of American companies rolling out mindfulness training programs? Yoga is now over a billion-dollar industry. Microdosing with psychedelics is on the cover of The Economist. Really strange things are going on in this world right now, and we want to know what was driving it. What we're seeing is that four forces are all essentially accelerating exponentially, right? They're moving very, 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 very quickly, and they're driving this forward. And there's psychology, neurobiology, technology, and pharmacology. And the thinking with psychology and neurobiology, since what we're talking about is kind of altered states of consciousness here, we now have the tools to kind of map and measure what's going on in our brains and our bodies when we're experiencing the inexplicable. Pharmacology is giving us access to these states nearly on demand, and technology is also giving us access to those states nearly on demand, but they're also taking it wide, right? So all four of these forces are kind of spreading these things out, and we did a calculation. So we call it the altered states economy. And we basically looked at how much time and money and effort people spent chasing peak states of consciousness like flow. And we looked at it globally and we looked at a lot of different categories, adding things up. And I might give you a more detailed breakdown if you wanted, but we came up with the number we came up with was $4 trillion. It's like one sixteenth of the global economy is spent chasing these kind of states. And some of that is really sloppy, right? Some of this is, is not a healthy approach to these kinds of things, but a lot of it is. And it's interesting and growing. Yes. Okay. Well, so then let's get into it. So what are some things that uh, we can do here now today to tap into some extra flow? So Let's just walk through a handful of the triggers. And I'll just, I'm going to talk about, so 
there are a bunch of different triggers in a bunch of different categories, but there's three triggers in the psychological category. And you talked about one of them already, which is the challenge skills balance. So that is unbelievably critical. Of course, two other ones, immediate feedback is another flow trigger. And so, for example, I studied action adventure sport athletes who are very good at getting into flow. And one of the reasons is you, when you're performing in the mountains, on the ocean, whatever, it's a living environment. You're getting immediate feedback, right? You either set your ski edge on the top of that kawar, you slide on a, a Facebook death slide to the bottom. Well, the same is true everywhere. And the reason this is important, right? Flow follows focus. So if you have immediate feedback, you don't have to pull your attention out of the present moment to course correct. You don't have to wonder, am I doing a good job? You know, feedback is immediate. So what does this look like organizationally is interesting. And so if you work for an organization or run an organization where you're getting quarterly feedback reports or yearly progress reports or that kind of stuff, well, that sucks. That's not enough feedback to stay at all in flow. It's, It's terrible. So where this works really well, companies that have kind of an agile methodology, if you're in the software business, where there's lots of rapid experimentation, small experiments, that's really good. You're getting lots of feedback that way. I'll tell you, so I'm a writer and book editors are sort of editor and name alone these days. They're so busy and the the market is so taxed. They're very talented, but they don't do a ton of editing. So I can't write a book and have an editor weigh in three times and that's it. Like that doesn't work for me. So I have a guy on my staff who reads everything I write about twice a week for feedback. Okay. And there's something like you can even take it one step further and figure out. So I figured out in my writing that when I tend to believe that when I make errors, my writing is either arrogant, boring, or confusing. So that's really what he's looking for. Is my writing arrogant, boring, or confusing? And those three errors are tied to like, I know why I made each of those errors. I just happen to make them all the time. But it's what I call the minimal feedback for flow. And you can kind of figure this out for yourself with whatever your main task is. But what I tell people is that you can't afford to hire somebody to give you that kind of feedback. Find a feedback buddy. Find somebody you can work with where you can get feedback from them all the time and speed up those feedback loops. That's really helpful. Now, so you say about the minimal feedback piece, you're saying, okay, hey, colleague, I don't need you to masterfully critique it to perfection. But what I do need for you to do is make sure I'm not committing these three common errors that we can nip in the bud rather quickly. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, so this is not my exercise. This is Josh Wadeskin's exercise, but I kind of love it. One of the ways to dig out what those errors are is to ask yourself, what did I believe three months ago that I know is not true today? And ask yourself, why did you make that error? What was missing in your logic? And do this, obviously, like on your core task, wherever you want the most feedback. So focus on that and ask yourself with this task in mind, what do I know now that I didn't know then? And why did I make that mistake? And if you do that repeatedly, you'll start to tease out exactly where your common errors are, where your blind spots are, and what kind of feedback you need. Okay, cool. And and what's the third psychological trigger? Clear goals. Here, we're talking about goal setting in general first. So if you're interested in hacking motivation, we learned in the 70s that setting a just a high, hard goal, right, a big goal is enough to boost motivation 
almost 25% in some cases. So huge spike in motivation simply by setting a high heart goal. Now, high heart goals are different than clear goals. High heart goals are these big amorphous things in the future. I want to go to med school. I want to write a book. That's a high heart goal kind of thing, right? Clear goals, flow follows focus, right? Clear goals mean I know what I'm doing right now and I know what I'm doing immediately afterwards. So I don't have to pull my attention out to steer, right? So it's interesting because clear goals are often really, really, really tiny. So for example, when I set up, I try to write 700 words a day, right? And if I'm stuck in the clear goals and working, that's too big of a goal, I will break it down and I'll say, okay, I need to write 200 words that get at the emotion of this paragraph that I'm trying to get. And I really, really clear goals and, and I shrink them down. Where this is really useful kind of for most people, I find, is most professionals. So one of the things that we know is that most professionals will spend about 5% of their work life in flow without even knowing it, right? McKinsey figured out that if you could increase that by 15 percentage points to 20% of your time, overall workplace performance would double. Just to give you an idea of how eminently trainable this stuff is, Three years ago, we did a six-week joint learning exercise with Google where we took 80 Googlers, 70 Googlers from across the company. So coders, engineers, people in facilities, people in marketing, PR, you name it, we had them. And we trained them up in four flow triggers and four kind of high-performance basics, like really basic stuff, sleep hygiene, get enough sleep at night, that kind of thing. And over the course of six weeks, they did about an hour's worth of homework a day sort of spread out we saw a 35 to 80% boost in flow. In fact, we have a flow fundamentals course. It's a digitally delivered six-week course available through uh, the Flow Genome Project website. And we measure uh, pre and post. We're seeing measuring seven different characteristics of flow, a 70% increase. And the, the point is not that we are secret ninja experts at training people in flow. There are lots of people who do this. We think we're very good at it, but there are a lot of other people who do it. The point is that this stuff is really easy to train. We just haven't been paying attention to it. So clear goals, know what you're doing, know what you're going to do next. Make a to-do list. And when you're moving from one item to the next, mind the gap. That's where most people get lost, right? You'll finish one task, and before you go to the next one, you will do something that will pull your focus out of the present. Like you'll check social media, which is terrible because it produces an emotional reaction. And that's exactly what you're trying to avoid. You want the clear goals. I know what I'm doing now. I know what I'm doing next. And it works that way. So that's really useful. Okay. When it comes to the gap, I want to make sure we hit this. So we've talked to other peak performance folks who talk about, you know, full engagement, energy and attention and all that. So before you mentioned some spaces of time, such as 90 minutes to 120 minutes or even more. So do you have a quick take on sort of rest, rejuvenation in terms of maybe it's a quick breath or bathroom or what sort of counts as being rejuvenating but not breaking the flow? Some people like a little bit of physical exercise, right? They'll get up every 50 minutes and do three sun salutations, which is just fine. That'll work great. Uh, Three sun salutations or a little kind of Pomodoro set of some kind or... I really like, I don't know if you know what box breathing is. It's a kind of, it's a mindfulness practice that the Navy SEALs use. You can just search box breathing online and and learn it. It's very effective as a mindfulness technique. Anybody can learn it, but I can do kind of three cycles of box breathing and it takes 
maybe 90 seconds to two minutes to do, depending on how, how slowly you're breathing. And so if I need to reset between tasks, that's what I'll do. Okay, perfect. Got it. So, so that's the, the psychological triggers. Now, how about some neurobiology triggers? Well, so all these triggers are neurobiological. Oh, okay. So they do different things. So for example, there are three environmental triggers, high consequences, deep environment, and a rich environment. And I'll talk about those in a moment. But most of these triggers drive neurobiologically. They trigger the release of either norepinephrine and dopamine or both. These are performance-enhancing chemicals. They do a lot of different things in the brain and the body, but they're also focusing chemicals. So that's why they're so important here. Some of the other things, so clear goals doesn't appear to drive norepinephrine and dopamine, but what it does appear to do is lower cortisol levels and keep the brainwaves out of high beta and down in the alpha theta range, which is where flow is. So there's different things underneath different triggers. And, and let me just be really clear. There is so much more research that needs to be done here that everything I'm saying is true as far as we know, but there's a big but question mark after some of this stuff on triggers because it's just really new information. Okay. But so let's go back to the other triggers. So for example, a rich environment means lots of novelty, complexity, and unpredictability in the environment. And I'll give you the common example is, again, back to action adventure sport athletes, right? One of the reasons these folks had so much flow is they perform in living environments, right? Snowpack moves on a minute-by-minute basis. The waves are always changing Yeah, if you're out in the ocean. So there's lots of novelty, lots of complexity, lots of unpredictability. Those are all three things that the brain loves, produces huge amounts of dopamine, drives a lot of focus, slides you right into flow. You can also get at those architecturally. And my favorite example is Steve Jobs. So when Steve Jobs was kind of redesigning Pixar, he wanted more creativity in the building. He wanted more flow in the building. And he thought the problem was there wasn't enough novelty, complexity, and unpredictability because his staff was balkanized, right? The producers were staying and talking to the producers, and the marketing people stayed and talking to the marketing people, and the cell animators stayed and talking to the cell animators, and, and nobody was bumping into each other. And so there was no random spark of ideas, not enough novelty and complexity, and not enough creativity as a result. So when he redesigned Pixar, he famously put a giant atrium in the center of the complex, and he put the only meetings rooms, message rooms, cafeteria, and the only bathrooms in the entire building right off the atrium. You had to walk through the atrium to get to any of them. So what happened was people started bumping into each other and they started getting into random conversations. And suddenly, malware complexity and unpredictability massively increased. You got a whole lot more dopamine flowing between people. You got all these little moments of group flow, huge spikes in creativity, and all those Oscars. Excellent. Yes. Cool. And so, and what about the high consequences? High consequences. This is obvious, right? Flow follows focus, and consequences catch our attention, right? So, the obvious is physical risk, right? Again, action adventure sport athletes, right? Lots of physical risk, but it's interesting. What we know is that emotional risk, intellectual risk, creative risk, social risk all work really, really well. Social risk is a great example. You would think from an evolutionary perspective that like the number one fear in the world is something like getting eaten by a grizzly bear, but it's not. It's speaking in public, right? And the reason is your brain can't actually tell the difference between social fear 
and physical fear. They're processed by the exact same structures, which makes no sense at all until you realize that when you go back like 300 years ago and before, if you got kicked out of your tribe, if you got exiled, you couldn't survive. Nobody could live on their own. So it was a capital crime. And so the brain treats it like a capital crime. So social risk is a really kind of great way to trigger flow as well. So risk is really useful. And what again, once again, what does this look like organizationally or in your daily life? And I always say that like play with the risk trigger, the companies you want to work for, the, the environment you want to design is something with that Silicon Valley fail faster, fail forward motto. And you need the space to fail because you need the space to take risks. Without risk, there's not enough energy in the system to really drive flow. So again, this is where agile methodology makes a lot of sense. Rapid experimentation makes a lot of sense. Skunk works make a lot of sense if you're trying to drive flow and innovation. Okay, cool. And now can you share some of the pharmacology triggers? Advances in pharmacology are more kind of in the psychedelic realm and and that's slightly different from flow, but kind of what the research is showing, and this is sort of, you know, one of the things we talk about in Stealing Fire is that the neurobiological changes that show up in flow are not that different from the changes that show up in meditation or during psychedelic experiences or during so-called mystical experiences, trance states or contemplative states. All these things are states of awe for that matter. All these things have a, share a very similar underlying neurobiological signature. And so what we're seeing you know, in neurobiology is kind of psychedelic research is is going gangbusters right i mean we're seeing absolutely amazing work being done in ptsd and trauma and anxiety and the kind of the point here and where this gets interesting and probably the, let, let me just give you a couple examples to answer your question because it's a long way around but I, it's worth understanding so why all this research matters is we're starting to get options and the best example of this is work done on post-traumatic stress disorder right which is like the extreme end of the anxiety disorder spectrum and Pharmacologically, we learned back in the early 2000s through work done by Dr. Michael Mithohofer and the research team at MAPS that one to three doses of MDMA, so MDMA is, is sort of the pharmacological name for the street drug, ecstasy or molly, whatever you call it. It's an empathedelic, not technically a psychedelic, it increases empathy. But they found that one to three rounds of MDMA therapy, so that's MDMA administered in a clinical setting with psychiatrists there and like eight hours of talk therapy, was enough to completely cure or significantly reduce symptoms of PTSD in victims of child abuse, sexual abuse, and soldiers returning from combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's been about five years since that original study was done, six years at this point, and these people are still in remission. So that's neat, right? Then they redid that experiment at Camp Pendleton with a thousand soldiers. And this time they were like, okay, so psychedelics aren't for everybody. Let's use surfing, which is a known trigger for flow states for a lot of reasons that we've been talking about, right? So they use surfing and talk therapy and they redid the whole thing. And they found that after five weeks of surfing and flow states and talk therapy, they saw a significant reduction or a complete disappearance of PTSD. Then they redid the study with meditation, a mantra meditation system, I believe. And they found that four weeks of daily meditation, 20 minutes a day, was enough to produce the same results. So what all this is telling us is we have options. 
We have options like we've never had before. And they're coming from all directions. And the research is accelerating everywhere. Oh, that's so cool. Well, Stephen, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Uh, the only thing I want to mention, only because it's new and it, it goes much deeper into you know individual ideas, is if you go to the Flow Genome Project Facebook page, which is literally www.facebook.com slash Flow Genome, G-E-N-O-M-E, every Monday at five o'clock Eastern time, I do Monday on the Mind, and it's a half hour deep dive into we, you know, two weeks ago, we did a half an hour on clear goals and really how to get into that and how to apply it in every situation, that sort of thing. So that might be interesting to people listening. Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Margaret Atwood. Everybody I know is an adult. Me, I'm just in disguise. That's good. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? There's a couple of them. How about I give you two? Sure. Song of the Dodo by David Quammen, which is... Just an amazing, if you really want to understand the, today's environmental crisis, it's just the most amazing book on that. And my favorite book on consciousness ever is a book called The User Illusion by Tordney Anderson, which is just one of the smartest books ever written about consciousness. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Well, it's got to be my skis. Okay. <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? Oh, I get up at 4 a.m. It's my favorite habit. Well, now I have to know when you go to sleep. Depends. But early, somewhere between eight and 10 most nights. All right. And is there a particular nugget that you share in your writing or your speaking and, and working with folks that seems to really connect and resonate and get them quoting you back to yourself? Well, what I said to you earlier that we keep trying to train up skills and what we really need to be training up is a state of mind seems to be a, a pretty good mantra for people these days. I hear that back a lot. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? StephenCotler.com flowgenomeproject.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. So this is going back to the challenge skills balance. It's the one thing we didn't really cover. And so you mentioned Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. So a couple of years ago, he teamed up with a Google mathematician and they did a back of the envelope calculation, trying to figure out with the challenge skills balance, how much greater the challenge should be than your skill set, right? That was the question. The number they came up with was 4%, 4% greater. Now, that was just a guess. We took that number into the Flow Genome Project and said, okay, let's see what we can do with it. And we've been running kind of amateur experiments and beta tests and just looking at it deeply for about four years now. And time and time again, we're finding that is exactly the case. So here's what's super interesting about this. 4% is not much, right? You really are just it's a little bit harder. Now, it's, if you're an underachiever, a little bit of an underachiever, you're a little shy or you're a little meeker, you're a little along those lines, 4% is tricky because it is literally the, the line where you're pushing on your comfort zone, right? You're stepping outside your comfort zone, but you're right there. For top performers, their problem is the exact opposite. Their problem is they'll blow by 4% without even noticing, right? They'll take on challenges that are 10, 20, 30, 40% greater then kind of this and by doing so they're locking themselves out of the very state they need to kind of meet those challenges so it's a little bit harder every day but the interesting thing is when you spend time around the best of the best what you really see is what they've 
internalized and what they do so well is they understand that it's 4% plus 4% plus 4% day after day, week after week, year after year for a career. Like that's how you actually like really do the impossible. Mm, That is so good. Well, Steven, thank you so much for taking this time and sharing. There's a a boy, lots to chew on, and I'm excited to get some more flow going into my life and work sessions. And I, and I wish you much flow and all that you're up to. Thanks, man. I appreciate the time. I really loved how Stephen said, flow follows focus. And not just because it's alliterative, but because I have often been in a state of mind where it's like, hmm, oh, I should probably do that. But you know, I don't, I'm not really in the right groove for that. I don't really feel like it or really don't want to. Procrastination sets in or whatever. Whereas I would love to be in flow. And so this is pretty cool. Just as a reminder, it, it's not just going to jump up and grab you so much as it follows an act of the will to set forth your focus and is a real nice reminder to, again, get things like the social media distractions, et cetera, under control. So you have more focus to direct in places and thus get more flow. Powerful. I think it just raises the stakes for me. So I hope you found that helpful and more. And again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F245. And on Monday, it's Christmas. So I'll put out just a quick little reflection as these days between Christmas and New Year's are often a reflective time for folks. And there'll be no episodes for a little while, but we're coming back strong on New Year's Day. Susanna Kay is a professional organizer. She's talking about to-do list brilliance. So I hope to catch you there and that your days between now and then are full of family and fun and good times and all that. Many blessings. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 